Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hi, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, March 9th, 2023. Joining me for today's podcast are Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, AARP, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other fine publications. John Quain, who writes for my hometown newspaper, The New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. And Rob Pegarero, who writes about tech developments at PC Mag, Fast Company, and other publications. Guys, how are you today on a Thursday? Very good. Good. Better than expected. How's the weather out there? I was telling Stuart before the podcast, I'm actually coming out to New York uh, tonight for a Broadway show uh, weekend. But uh, how's the weather out there? Is it? Is it's it- supposed to snow, I believe, Friday night. Yeah, let me check. The Just for you. Well, yeah, you got to get out here before Friday evening. That's the that's the that's the strategy. Well, I'm taking the red eye out tonight, so I should be out there at uh, good old eight o'clock in the morning uh, in Excellent. New York. So yeah, you well, that's and it's going to snow. That's great. And, you know, I'm, thank you for that. I'll have to buy a $500 jacket just for the weekend while I'm out there. So anyway, let's bring up today's topics here because we've got a lot of fun stuff uh, to uh, chat about here. Uh, Rob, I want to tee this off for you. Um, you just got back. You were the one of the lucky three of us uh, to attend uh, Mobile World Congress. And uh, I'm sure you saw a lot of interesting things. So give us your, um, what were the highlights? So, yeah, number one, MWC is back. It was um, much better attended than last year, which itself was already pretty well, had a pretty good turnout. Uh, I did not get to everything I'd hoped to by any means, which is the sign that a trade show is functioning as advertised. When you leave it, get home, read other people's coverage and suffer FOMO. Um, in terms of smartphones, it was interesting because, you know, people just don't make smartphone announcements there so much anymore. The yeah. companies that do tend to be the non-U.S. companies, like not not in the sense not based in the U.S., but having minimal or no market presence. Companies like Honor, Oppo, uh, Xiaomi, who were showing off interesting concepts, folding phones. Uh, Lenovo was showing off a laptop and a phone with a sort of scroll-up screen, where the, the the foldable display sort of inches upwards out of the top of the phone or the uh, laptop screen as if it's sticking out its tongue or something. <laughs> it seems kind of impractical, like the idea that you're going to wait for this thing to display when you start to type an email to somebody, like, no, who's going to want to do that? It's probably why they had that under glass and I couldn't actually play with it. Um, it was very interesting to see the sort of discussions. I attended a panel on fixed wireless access where they had an executive from T-Mobile who, as I expected, did little, you know, end zone dance. Look at how we're kicking ass. Two million customers, new ones in the last year alone. But there was also a rep from a company in Finland where apparently fixed wireless access is a huge chunk of the business. An exec from an Italian telco who was saying, we're just getting started. And their complaint was that regulations about, uh, I guess, electromagnetic radiation, you know, byproducts of their mid-band 5G frequencies were too tight and they couldn't deploy it effectively. And then there was a guy from the United Arab Emirates where apparently 97% of houses have fiber, but there's still a business in fixed wireless, whether it's new construction or businesses that just need uh, need a connection set up right away. And so it's interesting to see that this is a real world benefit of 5G, not self-driving cars, not robot surgery, not any of the other 
nonsense that's been hyped out the wazoo over the past few years. But home broadband, without data caps that's given people a choice, and in the U.S. at least, letting lots and lots of Americans fire their cable companies. <laughs> and it seems Big Cable is still in denial. And so I was reading just, I guess, yesterday, Charter's CEO was saying, fix wireless. Oh, it, it's it's not going to wrap. It's not going to save them money. I'm like, Charter, right? You're the people who raised your rates by five bucks just three months ago. Somehow left that out of the press release you sent me. And um, well, Rob, does this surprise really? you? I mean, I mean, I, when you hear a CEO decry a new te technology trend, to me, that's always the first sign that they're scared. You know? Yeah. So, the uh, other one is when, if like Microsoft or Google enters your market, and you're like, this really validates the the, the market sector. Yeah, you're going to get. Or, or, or when Steve Ballmer famously said, when the iPad came out, it was just a gadget or it was just a toy. Yes. I mean, by the way, he was laughing about it on camera on yeah. CNBC. Not good. Yeah. But you know uh, what's interesting? Really and I, I, want, I, want to, I want to bring the one yeah. point you brought in. I want to bring Stuart into this and then get John's view. You know, I did see a lot of videos on the whole rollable displays. You know, um, I saw a lot of that, by the way. Um, Samsung is pushing that tech, the Samsung display um, group within that massive organization we call Samsung. It was really pushing that quite a bit. And I saw that stuff up close. I really think that's interesting. You know, I think it's interesting in the sense that putting costs aside, because I can only imagine the, the cost for the, the initial models will be, the idea of having a very small, compact smartphone that could extend, uh, you know, candy bar shaped into a much bigger display, because a lot of people like a bigger display on a smartphone. They don't necessarily want to walk around with a, um, uh, a iPhone Pro Max uh, in their pocket. I think it's interesting. So, uh, Stuart, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I my mean, first instinct was, what's wrong with just scrolling up? I mean, that's really what it's serving as. The amount of, you know, having seen, just watching the videos, I didn't see it in person, obviously, but just seeing the videos of it, it didn't look to increase the screen that much. If it, if it increased it by about 25, maybe 30%, and that doesn't seem to be an appreciable amount to make a $1,000 consumer buy functional difference you got to raise that price a little bit <laughs> just a little bit exactly exactly listen all of these guys are working with such tight margins as it is and like people in tv make market or any of of the other gadget makers you try to improve the profit margin and you introduce features that you think people will pay for but as as, as all of us who have been covering technology for decades um, a lot of these technologies are, we can do it, not we should do it. And um, until somebody demonstrates an actual function, you know, killer app or, or actual reason, you know, compelling reason why somebody should pay, you know, $1,400 for a phone that gives you 25% more screen space, but you have to eat up battery power while waiting for the thing to roll instead of just scrolling so i mean color me skeptical just a little bit um not that i don't think the technology is interesting i i nobody's answered the why question for me yet john point counterpoint oh, oh, yeah for me counterpoint well, i mean way back when somebody referenced you know the the cell phones have been around for 40 years now which i was like really uh and i checked and yeah they have been 83 84 I'm not going to tell you when I got my first cell phone, except when I had it in, in a restaurant in San Francisco and I put it on the table, everybody stopped. 
and have looked over. So that's how long ago it was. But, you know, originally the idea was, or at least one of the ideas was to have a rollable phone that would basically be the size of a pen and you would unroll it mm-hmm. and there would be your screen and everything. That's what this is. It's a really super early prototype, but that's what this attempt is, is to get, you know, we have OLED screens and you can roll them and they're flexible and you can print circuits on things that are rollable and flexible. The battery is going to be the, so that this is just one step, I think, on the way there. Is this the one to buy? No. Let me know when the rollable one fits in my pocket, that that one I'll buy. But, But this is an interesting step on the way there, I think. I think well, kind of- as Rob will say, and I think we'd all agree with this, anytime you see a technology at a trade show that's under glass, we are many, many, many moons away from the market. You know? And by the way, I think you guys appropriately brought up the two biggest concerns. What's the impact on battery life? Because if you uh, all of a sudden, that cut, I'm just saying this, and, and by the way, the, the, the device makers know this, if it cuts battery life back by 30 or 40%, you know, that's probably a no-go. And number two is going to be the cost. If this comes out at, you know, you know $1,400, that's where the high-end part of the smartphone market is. But if it comes out at, you know, $3,000, you know, I saw a report this morning that iPad, when they, uh, the, the rumor is that when Apple moves to OLED iPads, it's going to be almost as, now this is a report, this is not Apple, that the uh, an iPad OLED model will be nearly as expensive as a MacBook Pro. You know, so that's, that's a little bit crazy just for an OLED dis- display. Just a little bit crazy. People don't even know what OLED is. <laughs> so before we go to the next yeah. topic. It's OLED expensive. OLED? That's what it is. Yeah. Well, I just, I just want to give uh, Rob two more minutes. That is, there, is there anything else that you thought that jumped out at you, Rob? So, yeah, lots of discussions about things like 5G for industrial IoT, smart cities. Uh, VR was making, I think it got a little bit of a comeback. I got to demo the HTC XR Elite, which is a pass-through headset. And, you know, the past the number one test is, can you take a selfie with it on? And because you've got the camera pointing out to show you what's around you. And it really struck me when I handed my phone to somebody so he could take my picture. I look like a dork. He handed it back to me. I could actually like grab it reliably because usually with VR, or even if it is a mixed reality headset, you're like, uh, so that was interesting. Thousand dollars, so I'm not sure the consumer market, but there's lots of professional training applications you can think of for things like that. Right. Um, and satellite connectivity, uh, lots of people are trying to bring their own to market. Qualcomm has got Snapdragon satellite. MediaTek introduced their own solution. Yes. I uh, looked at phones from Caterpillar and Lenovo that have uh, the satellite connectivity built in. And a did little... you see the Motorola? Yeah, yeah, the, the Motorola Defy. So that's what I was thinking of. Uh, and a little sort of like satellite hotspot you would, I guess, strap onto your arm if you're hiking into uh, the, the outback, someplace where you'll have no connectivity so that if things go pear-shaped, you can use this thing to summon help. Yeah, I just think all the satellite functionality is, is so interesting because movies like Castaway will never happen again. Right. <laughs> you know, I feel sorry for the Hollywood screenwriters who want to use that as a plot. If someone gets stranded on an island or stranded in the desert, you know, how many movies have we seen? Tom like Hanks dusts himself off, presses a button. And the movie's over. Credits. And the movie's over in 10 minutes. And so just anyway, the transporter right. gets invented, then you'll have even less of oh, yeah. a, a stranded issue. And now we're now we're getting there on the edge here. Let, let us hit the uh, next topic I want to uh, chat about. And, you know, Stuart, this is right up your alley. Um, Spring TV, you know, TVs are coming, you know, and uh, it, it's, you know, you, 
the four of us have talked about this over and over again. It's becoming harder and harder for the big TV guys to differentiate themselves on features. There's still, you know, AK is still looming out there. I don't think it's really made a humongous impact in the market, honestly. And I think you, you agree with that. But uh, let's get your perspective um, on the, what we should expect with TVs later this year. And then we'll, I'll ask John, uh, John and Rob for their views. Well, I think this is a lot more of John's uh, topic since he reviews these sets. But having been to any number of these previews, obviously a lot of these TVs are introduced at CES, but they don't appear till the spring. And this week, several of the companies have released their price list. They re they announced the TVs, but the price list yes. doesn't come out until a few weeks or even a week before they actually end up in stores. And I think one of the more interesting things this year is a wider variety of mini LED models and lesser um, number of straight LCD panel TVs. I think mini LED has come just down enough in price that it's becoming that reasonable alternative. In the TV market previously, you have had low-end LCD models with edge backlighting or limited or even full array backlighting, which was still not great. And then you had OLED and you had this huge gap in between of nothing there except decent and unbelievable. And mini LED, I think, fills in that gap. And now we're beginning to see sub thousand dollar, 65 inch mini LED models beginning to hit the market, which really fill that price quality uh, compromise without having to spend three grand on a an OLED to get something that doesn't have all the banding and and bad color. But one of the things that really struck me when I went to a few of these demos and and I had these acid flashbacks, despite never having taken acid. Every year it seems to me that all of these TV makers do these ABC comparisons. They got their new yep. TVs. They got their own lat models from last year and somebody else's current models. And no matter how many of these demos I go to, everybody's models from last year's sucked. <laughs> and, and the biggest one of, example of it is always the reds. Look how reds are reds are and how orange they were last year. And I'm going, weren't you saying the last same thing last year? Weren't the reds great year? And the year before his models were really orange? And I always ask you guys, so this is out-of-the-box settings. And they go, yes. I said, who uses out-of-the-box settings when you're buying? You know, I mean, most people do. But why are you having out-of-the-box settings that suck? Well, <laughs> primarily because they have to be really bright and oversaturated to fight with the fluorescent lights in stores. And most, not that all TVs do this, but when a retailer takes a TV out of the box and puts it on the show floor, they don't want to futz with it. So for some reason, TV makers set the out-of-the-box experience as if the store is as if the TV is going to be displayed at a store instead of actually in somebody's living room. And by showing these out-of-the-box settings, of course they're going to be terrible. And I've never understood why they demonstrate TVs to those of us in the media who know what we're looking at and continually say, oh, last year's TV sucks and this year's TVs are great every single year. Thank you, Stuart, for that spirited um, soliloquy. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, but I do want to get John's view on this because, John, you are kind of a resident TV guy. But yeah. And I also want you to weave into some of your commentary because, I, you know, Stuart described the cadence extremely well. 
CES, you announce everything. You never they never announce price points because the market's so competitive. They kind of wait and see. I mean, that's also based on what inventory levels are with the old stuff, so they can so they can maximize whatever profit they can if they're right. if, the, if inventory levels are low. But I want you also comment on when is you know when is the ideal to buy uh, buy a TV? I mean, I know conventional wisdom you want to buy it around the Super Bowl because that's when people are you know dropping having specials and prices, but. I want you to to respond to what Stuart said, but also give us a little bit of insight of when's the right time in your view? Because I'm sure um, you get that question all the time. Oh yeah, April. I mean, there's no question. Uh, most of the models come out and start appearing. The new models come out in April. So if you want to get a deal, you'd try to get the old inventory. Would be that would be the ideal time when those new models appear, and that's usually about April. It is becoming like the automotive industry a little bit in the sense that they no longer introduce cars all at the same time anymore. That doesn't happen. They come out all year long, um, even though they'll call them next year's model. Uh, <laughs> they still do that. Uh, but the, yeah, TVs do. But still, a lot of them do arrive in April, come out in, in stores. That's the time frame. And, and I know exactly what Stuart's talking about. Yes, there was one particular manufacturer that, for example, this this spring is it spring yet it's spring um <laughs> demonstrated their tvs in that store setting mode and i had the same reaction which was well no that's the worst mode to look at a tv and just hit the the theater or movie mode you know that's what you do the trouble is if you did that which i did and <laughs> some of these sets they look pretty much the same as last year's model and they look yeah. pretty much the same as the competition they were pretty darn close there were some, uh, in fact, you know, depending on what you're looking for, you might argue, well, maybe last year's was a little bit better. Um, I think there's very little improvement this year in sets. Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be the main story. There are many LED, more mini LED sets out there, but they can look terrible too. I've tested a couple and they looked awful, even though they used mini LEDs. The technology people want to see is the micro LED, where you've got each individual pixel like that's that, yes. that way. And that technology has been promised for several years and it's still the yields are way down. They can't make a panel uh, inexpensively that way yet. And there are only a few panel makers. So, for example, Sony doesn't make panels anymore. Um, they're buying it from LG and then tweaking LG sets. So they're trying to tweak a lot of existing technology and there's not been a tremendous improvement this year. There's only so much you could do. So, well, and John, you just brought up a very good point in terms of the buying experience. The, the, the reality is, is that I never tell people to, um, base their def their, their, um, their buying decision on going to retail because retail is just the environment. It's not great to see a TV. Right. You got fluorescent lighting. Now, Within Best Buy, Best Buy has got Magnolia. They've got viewing rooms that you can go into. Not at all Best Buys, by the way, but right. a good portion. That may not be a bad place, but I've always recommended to people, you know, read reviews, you know, especially from folks like John Quain, because they will, you know, that you will evaluate the product and you guys, you don't have a, 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 a dog in the hunt. So you're going to probably give you a very candid opinion on what's good and not. But a little bit distressing that you think that there is really not a lot of incremental gain this year. You know? Not not a lot. I mean, TVs are a little bit better. They will be a little bit better. And and as Stuart noticed, the price points, you know, probably will be a little bit better at some for better technology. But in terms of making a major leap, you're not going to see a big one this year at all. A lot of it is, you know, video processing, a new processor that's been added to try and tweak the image and do upscaling from, you know, standard def or high def to more of 4K, which is where we're at. 
And as you pointed out at the top, we're not at 8K yet. I mean, I like the 8K sets that do exist. I think they do a very good job. If you look carefully, yeah, they actually do a good job with movies and stuff, but it's not, you know, they're not, it's not a category yet for people to actually buy into. Yeah, so Rob, to close us out on this, because um, I know you have an AK TV in every room in your house. You're that type of guy. I'm National 8K. I know that's your I, dream. If I get to buy an AK TV at my head check. Yeah, AK, I don't see any demand there. And for that matter, neither really does the Consumer Technology Association. They have revised their estimates for AK TV shipments to dealers, which doesn't necessarily mean people buy these things way right. down. Like two years ago, it was like 1.6 million for this year. And I think now it's like 160,000 or maybe that was last year. Anyways, the, the, it's not the hockey stick going this way. It's this going that way. Right. Uh, Cause why you need such a huge TV to benefit from it. There's nothing to watch. There's not going to be anything to watch anytime soon. The only AK native content I've seen was at IFA last uh, summer where uh, the series DOS boot was being made available in 8K streaming for all like 10 buyers in Europe to watch. <laughs> Uh, you know, my own benchmark for this is when I go into Costco, what kind of TVs do I see yeah. on your right as you're walking in? Never <laughs> seen an 8K there. Lots of 4K sets, even some high-end OLED sets. But the people at Costco, who I think have a pretty good model on what people actually want to spend money on, don't see a demand. There. All about volume. You on All their website, volume. that's it. Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, the... Um... I want to hit the next topic uh, in a second here, but I, I just can't see a reason. And I think you made a, a point that's really good in that you really can't appreciate AK unless you're talking about 75 or 85. Or, and by the way, I a 103-year-old house. I can't fit a screen that big. <laughs> well, you could take your wife and let you, but let's face it. I mean, if, if, if you look at the volume in the market, most of the volume is to 65 inch and below. And that's a function of people's, you know, if you want to put one in a condo or your apartment, you know, you put in, uh, God forbid, an, an 100 inch, 85 inch TV. That take, I mean, the, the the experience is too overwhelming, and it's just not, it's just not um, ready for prime time from my perspective. So, anyway, let's hit the uh, next topic here. This one's close to my heart. You know, I've been talking about this now for um, last a couple of. Actually, I've been talking about this for for several years, but it's always fun, fun to me where Apple. You know, they've been so reticent about, you know, giving up their remaining keys to the kingdom, and that is iMessages. Uh, and I've, you know, opined about this quite a bit. I've written several articles on this on Tech News World that, you know, uh, applications like uh, what Intel just recently did, they have an app that you can download on certain Evo certified notebooks that kind of sort of get you access to um, uh, text messaging on a uh, Windows uh, PC. Uh, Microsoft has done the same thing recently, and there, there's tremendous compromises. You know, you it only syncs up with messages that you're sending the moment you make a connection with your phone. You can't access phone uh, images on your gallery. And anyway, it's not a great experience. It's really amateur hour from an experience standpoint. I don't think that's too strong a phrase. Lo and behold, the EU comes along and says, you know what, Microsoft, uh, Apple, if you're not going to do this yourself, we're going to force your hand and actually require you to open up the API on text messaging so other platforms can have a much more highly inter interoperable uh, experience. You know, they, they've done this before with USB-C, you know. I don't like this personally because I don't like, I, I, I'm a you know free market type of guy, but, you know, Apple, 
I imagine what Apple will end up doing is they're not going to wait for the EU to, to, to force them to do it because if they do it, if you do it in, uh, in Europe, you're obviously going to have to do it um, on a worldwide basis. So I, I just got to pull Stuart into this because I know, sir, you're, you're, you're nodding your head. Want to get your viewpoint on this whole morass. Well, quite frankly, I, I agree with you. And I'm, I'm not, I, I'm sort of a semi free market guy. It's just, I'm, I'm my, my, my gut instinct is government getting involved in telling tech companies what to do with their intellectual property. That is, that to me just is just a huge bozo no-no. But I think what really might be, uh, might be helpful here is not Apple doing something on its own, but perhaps the message text messaging industry, as it were, do something along the lines of a matter-like solution. They kind of have already. Yeah, Google. Well, I know it's SMS, but I mean, I think the argument is that Apple has such multimedia capabilities and end-to-end encryption the way that WhatsApp has. And so I think what the EU is saying that we want Apple's advantages to permeate the system as opposed to um, SMS, which isn't very, very secure, et cetera. And the thing that sprung into my head when I was sort of reading about this over the last couple of days was that when I do email and you go online and you can go online to the Google site and you can get your Google mail on the Google site, then you can go to Yahoo, get your Yahoo mail from the Yahoo site and and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can get Outlook or the Apple mail app and you can put all your mail accounts in one application. And I'm just wondering if there isn't a, app solution for messaging that allows you to bring in these varying um, accounts that you may have, whether it's WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or whatever. So they're in in one app without having to dive into um, or force Apple or any of these companies to give up their API or their intellectual property. Yeah, I I think what you're suggesting is interesting, but it's not possible. I mean, yeah. I didn't uh, say it was possible, and I agree with you. I no, think no, no, it's no. Interesting, right? Well, and and, and here's the thing that just flummoxed me. I, I really, so, hey, listen, I I have a I have a view that Apple will do this. They're not going to wait to be told. I hope that happens. But what 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 just confounds me is that if Apple feels that this is a human uh, differentiator, uh, a huge dif- differentiator, it drags people into the Apple ecosystem, which is at the end of the day their motivation for doing keep, keeping the. Uh, uh, keeping the environment like it is, they could turn this into a revenue opportunity. They could say, you know what? If you want to use, if you want an app uh, or open up a version of iMessages that will work with Windows, we'll charge you ten bucks. We'll charge you fifteen bucks. You know, and and by the way, that would. I mean, all of a sudden now, if you're a Windows user, oh well, hey, I'll cough up that amount of money, and it's probably or an, or Android or Android or into your right. Apple One subscription. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, Rob, you you're always. Uh, so yeah, when it comes to topics, part of what the EU seems to be asking, like at times at least, it sounded as if they want interoperable end-to-end encryption, which is really hard to do. It is hard enough to do yeah. between different versions of the same app, uh, let alone the same app on multiple endpoints. When you have different apps cooperating, like we don't have that in email and people have been trying for the last 30, 40 years. Uh, I think there are intermediate solutions like Apple, to Apple, I would say you cannot say privacy is a fundamental human right. It's right on their website. And then say, oh, unless you're texting somebody with an Android phone, then you only get unencrypted in the clear SMS because they won't support RCS. 
the Google Back standard, which is actually the wireless industry as a whole supports it, does at least encryption in transit. Um, Apple doesn't want to support it. It's They're just leaving people stuck on that. Google, of course, is not without fault here either because they have not shipped an API that would let, for example, Signal build in support for SMS. So as a result, that encrypted messaging app is dropping SMS support outright because they don't want to leave their users in a situation where, oh, whoops, that message you right. thought was getting encrypted just right. went out over the air. Anybody could read it. Right. Uh, for that matter, Google doesn't support RCS and Google Voice, which they control completely. Right. So right. I'm kind of mad at everyone here. Uh, but <laughs> Apple, I think, looks the worst off because they're starting with this moral high ground status and they're not doing one thing that would greatly improve a lot of people's texting communication and wouldn't really cut into the iMessage lock-in. It's just the right thing right. to do. Right. And if you're in a situation where a government is forcing you to do the right thing to do, you should maybe think if you should have made a few different decisions a year, two or five years ago. Well, and I agree with that. I just think that the marketing teams within Apple are saying, hey, this is one of the things that's a true differentiator for us. It allows us to protect why, one of the reasons why you should buy an Apple MacBook, you know, because you, uh, you have that, you're part of the uh, ecosystem. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I, I got to pull John into this because John, I know you're an anti-free market type of guy, you know, and uh, you want to, you, you want to control, you want to have a mastermind control <laughs> everything. I'm joking. I know you're not that type. You're not smiling. So, or the screen is frozen. Uh, anyway, I want your view. I, I, you're a reasonable guy. What, what's your view on this? John? Well, I guess you wonder whether you think of this as like a standard for the plug, you know, a countrywide standard, international or telephones. Or remember when we first had cell phones going back to that? You couldn't call. They didn't work in the same systems and stuff. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy yeah. stuff. So if you think of it that way, in that kind of frame of reference, then yeah, it sort of does seem to make sense that, gee, if you've got this messaging app that's used everywhere, this communication service, maybe it should be compatible with everything and work the same way. I, I'm not saying you can enforce it or should do it in certain cases. And to Stuart's point, look, better technologies have failed because government or regulators said, well, this is what we're going to do. And we've had many arguments over the years about, you know, this is better resolution than that, et cetera. And then they pick one. And, and so that definitely can happen. Absolutely. But I can see, I, I can sort of see where, where their perspective is in thinking about the communication systems that way. Right. Not that I think this is the way to go, but I, I just see what the thinking is behind it. Yeah. Right. So, well, I don't know where this is going to end, but I, I'm just a, a believer that when government gets involved and, and forces something like this, it's never clean. It's never neat. And I just, I, I would, you know, if, if Tim Cook is listening to me, which he's probably not, I would like <laughs> him to you know, do something. And the other, the other, one, one other point yeah. on this is it cost Apple a lot of money to develop these technologies and the EU is just simply saying, just give, open it up to everybody. And I'm going, like you know, Ray Liotta, the late great late Ray Liotta in Goodfellas. F you, pay me. <laughs> <laughs> we had to have a, a Ray Liotta reference. He was a fine actor, by the way. He was yes, a very fine yes. actor. Very fine actor. Let us bring up the last fun topic here, uh, right. up here on the screen here. And um, John, I want you to really lead the charge on this discussion. But you know, the Supreme Court and Section Two Thirty. Now that's a deal. It's in front of the Supreme Court. 
Um, I'll just say it's kind of refreshing when you see highly educated men and women, because there were several on the Supreme Court that admitted in the that recorded version that they don't know what the hell's going on from a technical standpoint. I mean, they didn't say it that way, but there was a lot of skepticism. A lot of it just based on the fact that they believe they don't have the technical chops really to make a, 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 a wise decision that was expressed by a number of the uh, justices. Uh, which I thought actually was kind of refreshing, you know, and, and we've, you know, God knows we, we've all talked about that before that legislators and, and judges, when they get involved in topics like this, they, they're, they're, that's not their sweet spot. There's not their sweet spot. So John, let me pull you into this and then we'll get the uh, steward and, and Rob's um, perspective. Yeah, it's definitely not their sweet spot. I mean, it's a little bit like a presidential candidate who saw a first scanner in a grocery store. If people remember that story, H.W. Bush. Yeah. And they, and they sort of are like that. They're sort of like that when it came to the student loan arguments, too. They clearly didn't understand that. And they clearly didn't understand. By the way, are, are Joe Biden uh, commenting about using phonogra phonographs, if I recall? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I I he bought the first yeah, one. So maybe, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, yeah. John. Sorry. So uh, that's definitely an issue. But I mean, I think, you know, one of the questions I think people should have is, why are these people allowed to not play by the rules? That is Twitter, Facebook, Meta. It, it just seems like an odd thing to have this special rule for them. No other business gets to behave this way, right? No other business is completely, uh, you know, without they're culpable for things that happen in their business, except for these guys. Right. And, um, and, you know, we have been, just to refresh people's memory, 230 is part of the Communications Decency Act. It goes back to 1996, and it was, in, it, you know, offered there to protect these brand new search engines like Archie from uh, <laughs> the Archie predated that. That was uh, yeah. So Archie and stuff like that <laughs> to prevent and Yahoo was a new thing then too. Um, you know, prevent these that. people from being sued when JQ posted something online that was offensive. Because how could they possibly? stop it and scan everything and back then a lot of things were labor intensive and it was it, it was a it was a reasonable thing if i posted something on CompuServe the well yeah should i shut down CompuServe for that probably not fast forward to now things are different so the main case that's in front of them now or that they just heard recently was um they youtube and facebook meta had a lot of hate group terrorist postings online they had videos of people being killed they had all sorts of things posted online and then the islamic state attacked did the attack in paris a young student unfortunately american student was overseas there on a, and she was killed her father launched this lawsuit and uh since then the mother and the stepfather and the brothers have all joined the suit and that's what that's what brought all this up against um youtube is actually against google right now so the complaint of Google and Meta is, oh, what will we do? How will we govern and control all the content that people post all the time uh, online? And that, that seems like an insurmountable thing, except that newspapers and radio stations and everybody else that is now online too has to do exactly that. And if we don't do that, we will get sued. Right now, the only way recourse people have is they can sue the person who posted on, say, Yelp, which has happened quite a bit, but they can't sue Yelp. Yes. And Yelp just pays no attention. You can post any kind of review and say there were roaches in my salad or do whatever you want. And Yelp just it just goes right by. They don't need to worry about it. 
Um, so they're comp the, the companies are saying, well, there's no way there are billions of posts all the time. How could I scan it? Other problem with that argument is they already do. So in countries like Germany and, and places like that, they have much tougher restrictions and that stuff doesn't get online. So we'll see what the justices, you know, understand about this and how because there's a, a Twitter case as well. And will they try to partially change things? Say, well, it's like going to be like sex trafficking. We change the law on that. So if you yeah. post something like that, that's illegal. And yes, Twitter can get sued. And and right. so there are exceptions to this rule. But um, it'll be curious to see what they do. I'm I'm I guarantee it's not going to be one of their first decisions they hand down. It's going to take them a while. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be one of the more fascinating rulings, and I I think you're you're right, uh, Stewie. Let me pull you into this. What's your thoughts? Well, I'm the fact that it was the, that Section Two Thirty was written in 1996. Remember, that's only a year or so after the World Wide Web becomes available. So nobody knew anything about what they were legislating for, and they probably know less now. A lot of this current conversation, <laughs> as John points out, between newspapers, I mean, you cannot take out a newspaper ad looking to hire a paid killer to kill somebody, you know? That's right. illegal. You're committing a crime. I know. Rob, Rob, I think Rob, Rob that, tried that a few I got times. a bunch of fact checks coming up here. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's... And somewhere along the line, if, if a hitman gets hired, the hitman carries out the job. But the bottom line is that the difference between exist or, or legacy media and the Internet is a question of volume. And I think that's the big issue that the courts are trying to, to parse out is the Googles and the Yahoos and the YouTubes of the world are all saying, how can we police so much? you know, so much content and the court should say, that's your problem, not ours, yeah. because you're the guys who, who wanted this system right. to begin with. Right. You're the ones who decided to have an unfettered and unfiltered media outlet. And we're now telling you that it's now gotten out of hand. Yeah. Um, so I, but I think the court is going to try to rule as narrowly as possible. humanly possible on this, uh, understanding that they don't understand either this or the repercussions of it. And I, and this has got to be a legislative thing, not that I trust the legislature to do anything. But again, it, I, I always flash back to the Communications Act of 1996, which is it, which is a very interesting analog because they were updating a law that had been written in 1936. That's how long it takes the government to figure out or catch up to technology. It took 60 years for right. them to update the Communications Act, which means in between you, you went from radio to the internet with nothing in between, including right. the most powerful mass communication system ever invented, television. Right. So the fact that we're going to have to leave this to the legislature, you know, it you have to, but it just makes me laugh because it's going to take them a long time to get to it. Yeah. So, Rob, just to close us out on in this topic, um, the thing that just occurs to me, I mean, we keep and understandably, I think there are people. They people believe legislatures have like um, magic goggles can see the future. Back in 1996, you could argue that. They were so con the, the government was so concerned about making sure that the internet didn't get handcuffed 
and they saw the economic um, potential. I mean, we're talking about, and I, again, there was, that social media wasn't even conceived back in 1996. This, this was more about the, some of the examples that you guys have made. But let's face it, that act, while it's actually, hot, you know, it's, it hasn't aged very well, it has created a tremendous amount of economic opportunity. I mean, there's, that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that have gotten employed with new companies uh, that have been founded based on the, um, the ability that they have that kind of liability exclusion. And, you know, shame on the government that they haven't fine-tuned things over the last 20 years. And I think that's part of the problem. So to Stuart's point, since so much time has gone by, now you've got this big, hairy problem. And, you know, and we know the government legislatures, gen legislators are typically not great from a technology awareness standpoint. But I, I don't want to be, I don't want to really decry too much of why that act came to be in 1996, because there was a lot of positive things that came out of it. Right. You know, from my perspective, from, from an economic standpoint. So, Rob, close us out on this. Yeah, a few things. So, first of all, CDA 230 exists because we had a real problem in the 1990s of good speech getting sued off sites. Prodigy was actively trying to moderate discussion forums and Stratton Oakmont from the Wolf of Wall Street, yes, sued because they said, oh, you're moderating this. That means you're responsible. CDA 230's entire point is to encourage moderation, not a get out of jail free card. It says you can't be held liable for good faith moderation and of anything, even if it is otherwise objectionable. Um, another point, Google, YouTube, Facebook, they can afford to comply with lots of really restrictive content moderation regimes. It's everyone else who will get crushed, who doesn't have those resources. And CDA 230 doesn't have a you must be this tall to, you know, get the benefit of these protections. It's for everyone, sites of any size, even the comments on my own blog, CDA 230 protects them. No one comments on my blog, so don't worry about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and let's not remember, let's not forget, it's also not a get out of jail free card. It doesn't protect criminal activity. It doesn't protect copyright violations. It doesn't protect sex trafficking. We did revise CDA 230, I think like six, seven, eight years ago, not that long ago to say, you know, this is not a defense. If this is going on in your platform, you are liable for it. So we have tweaked it. We do know how to do it. I do agree that, you know, you may not like the way it reads, but it's a really clear statute. The yeah. core part of it is 26 words. And I don't think the court should be rewriting it because we don't like how, it, how it's turning out. Right. And so you can say, why are these sites getting this protection? Number one, they are speech platforms. This is not like a bank or a right. shipping company or anything else. And number two, this is what Congress said so. And there's no doubt of what they meant because one of the guys who wrote it, Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, is still around and serving. Right. The other guy, Chris Cox, I think, is on the uh, board of NetChoice, a tech lobbying firm. So it's not like we're trying to glean the intentions of the founders. <laughs> we know what we did. If we're not sure, we can talk to the people who wrote the law and got it passed. Right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up kind of there. But I agree with you that I, 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 I think the sentiment from all of you, I just think that when the ruling comes um, in the May time frame, it's not really going to be a blockbuster. I think much of it's going to be a yeah. back to the um, uh, back to the uh, legislature. Well, gents, uh, listen, thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast. For our viewing and listening audience, thanks for making the Smart Tech Check podcast part of your day or commute. Please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast or use these on-screen QR codes to connect with me. You can also follow me at Twitter at Mark Vina Tech Guy. And until next time, have a great week, Ben.